us this morning about crew, and so I'm excited to hear from her. on now? Oh, there we go. Other students will be teaching the small um, group lessons for VBS. After our VBS, we plan on traveling to Beaverton for a church plant where we will help with their VBS. We will also be going out in the community to do outreach in the afternoon, and we are asking for your help. We would like for you to prayerfully consider by investing in each one of us on our next steps, and we're currently selling shares, <laughs> sorry, shares. Um, by investing in us and purchasing shares, you will become shareholders. And at the end of this trip, we will be um, having a shareholders meeting where all shareholders will be invited to elect in a presentation. The crew team will then share with you not only about the trip, but also what each of us learned and how we grew in our faith and how we are able to go out and spread the gospel. We have a total goal of $5,000 to reach by July 27th, and we are currently at $2,200. There's an envelope inside your worship folder. If you'd like to invest in us, please um, place your donations the envelope and place it in the offering box by the front doors or you can also get by choosing youth scholarships or visiting the table in the foyer oops i turned my mic off thank you nicole i'm really excited about this opportunity and i would encourage you guys to invest uh, in this opportunity and to uh, to see the return on your investment in, in multiple ways uh, not only is this an investment in our youth and their uh, sharing of the gospel, it's an investment in our community through VBS as the gospel is shared here. It's an investment in a church plant, in a community outside of our own, and it's an investment in the outreach of the gospel there. Just, you know, uh, I, was, I was thinking as we were singing as well, it's kind of it's amazing how, how much God has just impressed upon me in this time uh, as we've even just begun our singing now. But I, I said, you know, uh, from, from the intro this morning to, uh, to the prayer box to Acts 1-8, but then there was something that just kind of dawned on me as we sang. We sang this uh, beloved song that most of us know, Amazing Grace, and one of the lines in there is, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. For eternity, we will never run out of days to sing his praise. But every day, we lose one more day to share the gospel. We only have so much time to tell people about Jesus because he is on his way back. And in eternity, people's, people's destiny will be sealed, either in heaven or in hell. And so while we have no less days to sing his praise, every single day that goes by is a day that we lose to share the gospel because we have an, etern an infinite number of days for praise, but a limited number of days for 
gospel sharing. And so I would, and I, I believe we will all stand before God and give an account to him of, of how we've conducted ourselves in the body. Before we turn to Colossians uh, chapter, actually, I'm going to save that announcement for, for next week. Uh, we, we've got some new, uh, well, I'll just go now because people are going to be wondering what that's about. I kind of blew that one. Uh, I was hoping that Dwayne Weston would be here this morning. I don't think he is. Uh, but at last week's um, elder meeting, we, uh, we nominated a new and, and affirmed a new chairman and vice chairman. So uh, the chairman this year for the elders will be Bill Dean, and I'm very excited to work with him in setting an agenda and leading uh, the elders. The vice chairman is Anthony Kaufman, uh, and, and I, I was really hoping Dwayne would be here because Dwayne has filled that role for quite some time. It is a role that takes a lot of time, a lot of thought, a lot of preparation, and as, um, as one who often stands in front of the congregation during members' meetings, uh, constitution adoptions, pastoral searches, it can be a hard position sometimes. And, and so I would encourage you all to, uh, whether he was perfect at it or not, uh, I'm sure he wasn't because none of us are. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I've let you down by now already. If I haven't, I will. I'm sure Dwayne and the other elders did too. Jesus, however, never will. But I would highly commend you to express your gratitude to him for his uh, faithful service uh, to Christ and to you and to this, this church. Uh, let's read now Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. I'll start in Colossians chapter 3, and again we'll transfer over to, Col- uh, to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, which we will continue to do for the next uh, two weeks after this Sunday. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then Ephesians chapter 5, just a few pages back, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that challenges us, that tells us uh, how to behave in the context of the church and in our homes. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that is marked by healthy families, that we'd be a church that invests in healthy families. Lord, that we would be a church of families who Uh, who invest in the church as well, who see the church as not only a place to bring up their children, but the place to bring up their children. Uh, Lord, that our children would grow up with with a a high view of the church, a high view of you, a high view of what you have done for us in Christ, 
Lord, that we would uh, that we would love the children as well. Lord, so often we think about how can we include children in what the adults are doing while our children and youth ministries struggle to figure out how to get adults to come to where kids are. Lord, may, may we not have a problem of service among us. May we, may we be a church full of adults who are willing to go where the kids are, who aren't, who aren't expecting the kids to act like adults, but who are willing to go engage in relationships and kingdom relationships and gospel relationships with our children, whether that be through serving in children's ministry or youth ministry or VBS or, or even just making sure our homes and our lives and our hearts are wide open to them. Lord, may we not think only of how children can be a part of the larger body of Christ, but how the larger body of Christ can be part of our children as well. May it, may, it, may it be used of you to raise up a generation of kids who love the church and who desire to be in the church, who see the church as the place that they want to be because they know it's where they receive their best care and their greatest affection and where their Savior has transformed lives. Lord, we pray for a moment, church, this morning as well. We ask that you would, uh, that you would build healthy families, gospel-oriented families among them. Lord, keep them and us focused on the gospel. Lord, we pray for Bob and Teresa Reister and their ministry in Japan. We thank you for the praises that they've shared with us, for the local pastor who hosts Bible studies, for the good news clubs with children who are attending and responding to the gospel. Lord, we thank you that new, new members have, that new people have joined the Bible studies that they have going on there. But we ask with them that you would save people through these Bible studies and through these good news clubs, that they would reach not only children, but their parents as well. Lord, we pray that as new believers attend uh, discovery classes, that you would assure them of their salvation and solidify uh, the gospel and what Christ has done for them in their minds. And Lord, we pray for the evangelism that they have planned during the Olympics, that you would use that to call and to draw people to yourself. Lord, let the word sound forth from us, not just in the building, but in the world, in our lives, homes, growth groups, relationships, everywhere, Lord. May your word sound forth from us. And as we turn to your word now, Lord, we ask that you would give us open eyes and soft hearts uh, and a willingness to be obedient to your plan. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We return now to the book of Colossians, and it's, um, it's taken us a while to get back here. I, I kind of feel awkward about that. It's just the way the timing of things worked out, how, how the timing of things worked out. But it was three weeks ago that I preached a sermon on how wives and the duty of a wife is to submit to her husband. And it would have been my preference probably to follow that right up immediately with what the duty of a husband is. But it's taken us some time to get here, and so I'm glad you're here with me this morning. Again, three Sundays ago, we saw the duty of a wife, and that is that a wife is to submit herself to the leadership of her husband. And we also saw that this can be a fearful role, that, that it, can be a, it can feel scary at times. What is it that a wife is to submit to? Is she to submit to abuse? Is she to submit to browbeating? Is she to submit to... Um, in intense control uh, to being cheated on? Absolutely not. I don't think this is at all what the picture is. I don't think the picture at all of what's being presented to us as Paul addresses wives first 
in both Ephesians and Colossians is that she's just to put up with everything silently and never have uh, any voice in anything. And so I want to begin this week to talk about the role of a husband. Now, normally I would... um, Normally, I would introduce or I would study a text, outline a text, make a preaching outline, and then figure out how to bring in other scriptures and other illustrations or quotes to be able to, uh, to support the points that I'm making from the text. And I, I don't want to do that today. What I want to do today is I want to share two quotes with you uh, from two different pastors, one an American pastor and one a German pastor, that rather than trying to support what I'm going to share with you later out of Ephesians, that would hopefully set to, or serve to set the tone of this sermon. Because so often uh, we hear the words, wives, submit to your husband, and then we don't really get the, the real picture of what it is that a wife, or a husband rather, should do. We think that, or the word that probably comes to my mind as the antonym, the opposite of of submission, is leadership. But note that what Paul calls husbands to is not leadership. I think there are other texts that hint at that and that tell us uh, some ways what that leadership is and what it should look like. But Paul does not see leadership as the direct contrast to submission. Paul sees love as the direct contrast to submission. So listen first with me, and these are two longer quotes, so I've put them up on the screen for you. Listen first to James Montgomery Boyce. He says, just because the wife is to submit to her husband does not give the husband the right to act like a petty tyrant around the house. In fact, he is not to be a tyrant at all. If the wife's standard in the marriage is the very high standard of love for her husband and submission to Jesus Christ, then the man's standard is to be even higher. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. No woman will have much trouble submitting to a man who loves like that. No good woman will struggle hard against a man who is willing to die for her. What does it mean to say that a a husband is to love his wife? Well, German pastor Walter Trobisch gives us this about this text. He says, let me tell you what it should really mean if a fellow says to a girl, I love you. It means you, 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 you alone. You shall reign in my heart. You are the one whom I have longed for. Without you, I am incomplete. I will give everything for you, and I will give up everything for you, myself as well as all that I possess. I will love you alone, and I will work for you alone, and I will wait for you. I will never force you, not even by words. I want to guard you, protect you, and keep you from all evil. I want to share with you all my thoughts, my heart, and my body, all that I possess. I want to listen to what you have to say. There is nothing I want to undertake without your blessing. I want to remain always at your side. This is the tone of what biblical love of a husband for his wife should look like. 
It is not demanding. It is not demeaning. It is not degrading. It is not controlling or coercive. It is loving care in the way that Christ loves his church. And so husbands, your role is not what you may think. It is not to rule your wife. It is not to control your wife. It is not to command your wife. And so today I want us to see from Ephesians four points for understanding a husband's role. Four points for understanding a husband's role. First, the precept. The precept is love. And I've already mentioned this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. I would simply like to highlight something for you of the importance of this. Like bookends of this section, this paragraph, verse 25 begins with the imperative to love your wives. This is in the imperative mood in the Greek. It is not a command. It is not optional. Husbands, you are to love your wives. And then Paul puts that exact same imperative again in verse 33 as a bookend where he says, however, let each one of you love his wife. Again, let there being, uh, showing us the imperative mood. He is commanding us to love our wives. And again, this is not, uh, love is the contrast to submission, not leadership. Of course, the word here, and sometimes we make too much of this, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think we can completely separate the different types of love here, uh, but the word used here for love is uh, agapao. It's, it's, that's the verb form of agape. It is divine love. It is selfless love. It is whole love. It is complete love. Men, while love involves feelings, love does not primarily involve feelings. God is not merely commanding our affections here. He is not merely commanding how we feel here. He is also commanding how we behave. He is commanding how we act. As I've mentioned multiple times, we've seen in first, uh, or I've mentioned at least in 1 Corinthians 13, that all 15 attributes of love described there are verbs. Biblically, love is described primarily in terms of what it does not in terms of what it feels. And so when you don't feel loving towards your wife, love her anyways. Act lovingly towards her anyways. I'm quite certain that God does not always feel good about my behavior. But I am also quite certain that he always acts lovingly towards me. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I'm not married. I'm not married yet, or I'm not married now. What does this have to do with me? Well, let me tell you, the more people in our church and in our society who understand what marriage is and the picture it presents, the better. But, but guys, if you're here today and you're not married, my challenge to you is to learn well what it means to be a good husband. And ladies, learn well what it means to look for in a husband. But the... the the precept that we come to first is love. And after giving that command to us, Paul shares with us the pattern of our love. If the command is love, it is to be patterned after Christ. Notice that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The question before us, 
which Paul doesn't really give a uh, much answer to. He does give some answer to that we're going to continue uh, to look at this morning. But what is the pattern of Christ's love for the church? Well, first it is initiating love. Uh, Jesus didn't come to earth. We sang the words this morning of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. So there being a word in Greek that does not mean measure, it's, he's not, Paul's not saying, or I'm sorry, John is not saying that God so loved the world, that his love was so great. Uh, the word there for so means in this manner, that God in this manner loved the world, that he sent his son. It, it, it's a love that set its gaze upon us before we ever noticed him. While we were Romans 3 sinners not seeking after God, God set his gaze upon you. And he desired you when you were undesirable. He desired you in your sin. And then he came to earth to not only just sit up in heaven and say, I love you and I desire you, but to be present with us, to live for us, and not only for us, but with us in complete obedience to God's law. And then after living in complete obedience for God's law, he died for us. He paid for us. He paid for us when we didn't deserve it. He paid for us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He paid for us not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. And now, even though we fail over and over and over, he delights himself in us. And he gives himself wholly to us without reservation in relationship. And, and he gives us, again, Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing. We, we gain everything he has. And we gain everything he, ha he, he, he has to give. Everything he deserves he has given us. Man, this is the pattern after which you are to love your wives. We, we, our society, our world, our fallen selves very naturally uh, equate love with being pleased with. As long as you behave in a way that is pleasing to me, I will love you. That is not what love is. Whether your wife behaves in a way that you like or don't like, your duty is to love her. Christ didn't love us because we were lovely. His love makes us lovely. What is the purview of, of this, this uh, call to love? It is death. How far, what is the extent to which our love is to go? Well, look with me again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did God, how did Christ give himself up for the church? He gave himself up to, to her in death to redeem her, to purchase her, to sanctify her. I think the thing that we really need to understand here is that Christ's death is not the substance of, of God's love for us, it is the extent of God's love for us. What do I mean by that? I mean, if, if simply death were enough, Christ could have been born and then 
executed with all the rest of the babies in Bethlehem under Herod's leadership. If, if the goal was just to get Jesus to die, he could have died at one day old. Death is, is not the substance, it, it's not the whole of what he did for us. He didn't merely die for us. It's the extent to which he went. Before he died, there was 33 years of absolute perfect obedience to the law. He didn't just die for us. He lived for us. He didn't just die in our place. He lived in our place. He didn't just take the death that we deserved. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. I think it's very easy to say, I would die for my wife all while neglecting her. Men, being willing to die is not the substance of your affection for your wives. It is the end of it. It is not the whole of what you must do for them. It is the length to which you must go. But between here and my dying for her is a whole lot of living. Is a whole lot of living for her. If you give attention to work and hobby and sport and children and leisure and everything else besides your wife, what does it mean to die for her? If you're such a petty tyrant, but you're willing to die for her, maybe she would even delight in your death. I don't know. There's a whole lot between now and our death. And your wife must be your highest priority and joy and delight. They are to be the standard of all things in your mind. No woman should ever measure up to who she is because she is the standard. No woman on a computer screen, TV, book, magazine, next door, at work, can ever compare to your wife because she is to be the standard of all things in your mind. But what is the purpose of your love for her? And your love does have a purpose. It has a purpose. It has a, 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 an end to which it must go. We see here in verses 26 and 27 a series of uh, what we call henna clauses. And henna means uh, that, or in order that, or for the purpose of. So here in this fourth point, the purpose of our love, we see to be godliness. And Paul uh, shows us this by giving us three purposes of love for our wives. Three things that your love for your wife should result in. And the first purpose is holiness. Look with me at verse 26. He gave himself up for her. In order that, there's that word in the Greek, henna, that he might sanctify her. To sanctify means to, to set apart. Jesus, in his life and death, he set us apart. He set us apart from the need to be obedient to the law. He set us apart from judgment. He set us apart from sin. He set us apart for himself. He set us apart to himself. Husbands, your love for your wife is to set them apart from all other things, 
all other women, if you're looking to your wife to be the reason why you're satisfied in her, you are placing a burden on her that she was never built for. You're expecting something out of her that God has not equipped her to provide. And wives, your husband is not able to provide you with that either. Our satisfaction can only be found in Christ. Our satisfaction must be in God alone. But, but your, your love for her, it is not her behavior or her looks or anything else that sets her apart from the world. It is your actions, your thought processes, your love, your affection that is to set her apart. Christ didn't respond to us as our personal greatness set us apart from the world. No, his love set us apart. And notice how he does this. He does this, verse 26, he sanctified her, that is the church, us, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. I don't think we can escape the tender picture of this passage. The tender picture of washing. The tender picture of bathing. That husbands are to wash their wives with the water of the word. And notice the, the, the ways Paul describes that, which we will not get to until next week in verse 29. He, he attaches the idea of nourishing and cherishing to this idea. This is a tender picture, men. This is a, a, I love the, the uh, title of Stu Weber's book, Tender Warrior. You can find a thousand books out there on how God has made men to be warriors. And that's probably true. Your sons can turn anything into a firearm, including a Barbie doll, right? But he has made us to be tender warriors. Warriors armored up outside of the house. They didn't wear their armor at home. This is a gentle picture. It is a cleansing picture. And notice the tool that he has distinctly given us to set our wives apart. It is the word. It is the word of God. It is the word of Christ. This is a distinctly spiritual cleansing. Men, do you initiate spiritual discussions with your wives? Do you lead your families spiritually? Does she have to drag you to church? Or do you lead your family in obedience to Christ? Does she have to be your conscience constantly restraining you from sin? You can find a thousand country songs about how uh, the guy sees his wife as somebody who's holding him back. Not in a bad way. They think this is a good thing. Oh, without her, I'd be wild and crazy. Man, would you be wild and crazy without your wives? Are you expecting her to be the brakes? Or are you leading in these ways? Are you leading in obedience? Are you initiating conversations? Men, lead your families. Lead them in holiness. Lead them in conversation. Lead them in meaningfully connecting with the body of Christ. Simply thinking about returning right now, I mean, this has, this has me thinking. There is a law of diminishing returns in, in our 
in, in our children. You know, we think in the office about how many weeks in a row we have to announce something in order to make sure the whole church can hear it. And the expectation and the statistic is that you will be here one out of four Sundays. Shame on you. I mean it. Shame on you. Because your children won't show up at all. Man, we've got to do better than that. We've got to do better than showing our, our wives and our children that while Christ gives everything, we'll give the least. We'll find our joy and our delight in everything other than him. We can do better than this, men. We can do better than this. Don't make your wife drag you along. Don't make your wife hold you back. We spend a lot of time doing that. It's hard on them. It's hard on them. The second purpose is that your love would be beautifying to your wives. Do you think that your love for your wife would be greater if she were more beautiful inside and out? Or do you understand that by God's design, your love is to make her, if nowhere else other than in your own mind, more beautiful inside and out? We've got it backwards. Again, God doesn't love us because we're lovely. His love makes us lovely. If you don't feel lovingly towards your wife, act lovingly towards her. Your love, like God's, should lead her to become more beautiful in your eyes. Look with me again at verse 27. So that he, that is Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Does your love seek to present your wife to yourself in splendor? Without spot or wrinkle or blemish? If, if not in reality, then at least in your mind? That's the picture of what Christ is doing in the church. When he loved me, when he called me out of the grave... When I came out of the grave in those grave clothes and I came back to life spiritually, I didn't stop sinning. My holiness, my perfect holiness, only exists at this point in God's mind. He'll make it a reality in the future as he will for your wife. But I'm holy because he's declared me holy. I'm holy because he's given me the righteousness of Christ. Is that the lens through which you see your wife? Does your love for her present her in this spiritual cleansing as, as holy and without blemish and spot or wrinkle to you? We're not perfect yet, but in God's mind we are. And your wife is never going to be perfect, but in your mind she should be. Oh, how often I fail at that. The third purpose of your love is purity. The third purpose of your love is purity. Notice again here, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is much like the first two, but the reality is this, men. Someday your wife will stand before Jesus and he will make her perfect. What are you doing today to bring her one step closer to that end? 
Do you encourage her to sin? Or, or do you protect her from it? Do you, do you want her to be a, a little more unholy in some way? Or, or are you, is your love bringing her one step closer to the perfection that Christ will give her someday? The question we're left standing, uh, the question that should be in our minds before us at this point is whether a husband or a wife, how do we get the fortitude to love our spouses like this? We, we soak in what Christ has done for us. We drink it in. We do that in two ways. We immerse ourselves in the word of God where we see what God has done for us. But we immerse ourselves in the church too. Nowhere in scripture is any one individual called the bride of Christ. You individually are not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is the redeemed. The bride of Christ is his body. Do you want your children to know what this kind of love looks like? You've got to participate in the bride of Christ. Where sometimes it's messy. Sometimes people sin. Sometimes relationships get broken. And it happens that way in marriage too. But we have a Savior whose love never fails, never stops, never ceases who is constantly working for our good to present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish, who lived for us and died for us. We soak in what Christ has done. You cannot look to your wife to be the reason why you will love her. And wives, you cannot look to your husband to be the reason why you will submit to him. And that is no insult to either side. Peter, again, calls marriage the grace of life. Your spouse is the greatest earthly gift God has ever given you. And he or she makes a wonderful gift from God, but a terrible God. They're wonderful gifts from God, but terrible gods. And they can never satisfy our souls. God didn't make us for that. Very specifically, he didn't make us for that. He and he alone can be God in our lives and, and in our hearts. This is not to say that we can't please each other. Certainly, God has built us for that. But this is to say that, that only God can be our source of satisfaction. I, I, I will close with this, and this is not... Uh, how I intended to close, but there was one particular time I went and I spent some time with, spent a day with a missionary. I don't have any clue what we had fought about, but it must have been a big one because I was unhappy that day and I was unhappy with you. And uh, me and another pastor went out with this missionary for the day and he dropped off, we dropped off this other pastor and now I had this missionary alone, and he asked how I was doing, and I was just honest with him. And he very, very patiently listened to my whole story. And I kid you not, his response, sitting in the front seat of his blue F-250 pickup, I remember it clearly, on golf links and Harrison and Tucson. This is how clearly I remember this. He looks at me and he says, Logan, you're a blood-sucking leech. And I thought, wow, thanks, Mike. 
He says, no, I mean it. You're a blood-sucking leech. And you have attached yourself to your wife. And because you need blood, you are sucking the life out of her. That need can only be met at the cross where there is an infinite supply of blood to meet your need. Lord, we know that at the cross, there is an infinite supply to satisfy our souls. Lord, these are convicting sermons to preach because my job is to herald the truth of your word and I feel like an utter failure and a fake as I stand here and preach it. Because there is much to confess in my own life. Too much laziness. Too much seeking uh, satisfaction in my wife and, and expecting of things that she's not made for. Too much giving of myself to work and not enough attention to her. But there is an infinite supply at the cross to cover my sin, to redeem us, and to satisfy our souls that we might live in ways that are holy and pleasing to you. Lord, I I pray that, that between now and when we get to see next week that this is actually good for our souls, that we would not be exhausted by this message, but that we would be energized by it that we would see in your word and that you are right, that to love and to cherish and to nourish our wives is to love and cherish and nourish ourselves. And that the more we seek our own satisfaction, the less happy we are. And the more we seek theirs, the happier they are. Lord, may our lives, may this church, may our marriages be a picture of the gospel for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn.